Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Right, hello everyone. Welcome, welcome. Uh, my name is Martin Wright. I'm a fellow of the RSA, as I imagine quite a few of you are. I'm also director of this thing, Positive News, which I think you've all been given as you came in. And we're partnering with the RSA on this event and on the whole what could go right theme in general, which as you'll see from the live stream, or if you're in the great room, great hall just now, is very much the theme of this afternoon. And what could go right is a question we don't ask nearly enough. When it comes to big issues like AI or the climate crisis or social care or education, we're so accustomed to seeing the problems, and God knows there's no shortage of them, that it's perhaps inevitable that the question we end up asking is, oh, what else could go wrong? And, you know, cue the doom scrolling. And it's understandable. But if that's all we do, we are missing a trick. Because actually, when our backs are to the wall, we, us lot, humans, are pretty damn good at problem solving. That is, after all, how our distant ancestors in the Rift Valley in East Africa escaped several brushes with near extinction and went on to conquer the globe, because we're really good at looking beyond the horizon. We're really good at seeing possibilities. We're really good at reaching for the stars. Now, you might say, yeah, well, look where that's got us. And you'd be right. But we're not going to design the spirit of adventure out of humanity. So our only choice, surely, is to harness it to create a future we actually want to live in, to fix, if you like, those unintended consequences of our ambitions, of that spirit of adventure. And a few weeks back, I saw a great T-shirt. In fact, when I first saw it, I thought it was a bit of a crap T-shirt because all it had written on, I thought, was keep calm and carry on. And then closer, I saw actually keep calm and carry on was crossed out. And underneath, in brighter type, it said, get excited and make things. (laughs) And I thought, yes. (laughs) Because keeping calm only gets us so far. Getting excited, creating stuff, on the other hand, well, you know, it's what RSA fellows have been doing for the past two and a half centuries or whatever, you know, in these four walls and outside, driven by a spirit of curiosity of asking what could go right. But if we're going to answer that question, we need, we need inspiration, we need stories of possibility, we need examples of stuff that's going right. And one of the, one of the most popular features online in Positive News and in the newsletter we send out, we've been running for a few years, it's actually called What Went Right by Coincidence. And people often say, don't you find it hard to find examples of that? Do we, bollocks? There are a lot of examples out there of people who are doing stuff, who are changing things, who are basically taking action to make their own lives and other people's lives better. And I just picked out a few things in the last couple of uh, What Went Rights alone. We've had stuff about renewable energy outstripping fossil fuels, breakthroughs in how to stay healthy in old age and how to stay productive and contributing in old age, progressive social experiments like piloting the four-day week, the basic income, menstrual and menopausal leave. Cambridge recently appointed its youngest ever professor, and he's a black guy who couldn't read or write till he was 18. Positive News is full of this kind of stuff, and that's the kind of stuff we're celebrating this afternoon, stuff that shows promise, stuff that can be held up and say, well, these guys are doing it, why don't you? And this afternoon, we're going to hear a lot more stories of what could go right. 
everybody who's going to speak from here this afternoon is a fellow of the RSA, and I think they sum up the sheer sort of range of experience and dynamism and general oomph which fellows have. And if you're not a fellow, and what you hear whets your appetite, then go and pounce on one of the, the RSA elves who are in their fetching turquoise T-shirts, and some at least are waving at you. Ask them for information and ask them how you can, you can be a fellow. Um, as you probably gathered, what we're doing is we're sort of hopscotching talks here with ones in the Great Room. So all the talks that are going on in the Great Room are going to be live streamed here. So you don't have to get out of your seat, you just have to go and have lunch. But you can also explore other stuff going on in the RSA house. There are workshops going on. Um, and do also join the discussions on Circle. If you've got the Circle app, we can download it. Keep the conversations going like that. So we're going to kick off on arguably the most, the most urgent challenge, thing which really needs what could go rightness about it, and that is the search for a livable climate. And Chidi, come and join me here. I'm going to introduce our first speaker. This is Chidi Anthony Oti Obihara, and he liked to joke with me that he's the biggest name in environmentalism that you've never heard of. <laughs> he's a former investment banker. He then, I won't say he saw the light, because I'm sure plenty of investment bankers are bathed in light, but he got very concerned about the climate crisis, got stuck into it. He now serves on the expert group of the Science-Based Targets Initiative. That's the thing which helps companies really have a, a rigorous approach to cutting carbon. Uh, he's part of the Project Drawdown, which is a sort of climate solutions initiative. That's full of inspiring stuff about what we can do about climate. Um, he's clearly an optimist because he stood as a Green Party candidate in East London uh, a few years ago. And he was the party's finance coordinator on the board of it. Um, but particularly what he's going to talk to us about this afternoon, he's co-founder and lead author of the COP28 Action Plan. And I think we're going to start off by seeing a little bit of him in action. So over to you, Chidi. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, thanks very much, Martin. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really uh, challenging uh, speaking in two terms about the catastrophe that we're in and the hope that we have. But that's the challenge I have for today. And I, I, I think I can do it a little bit of justice. But I have to set a baseline for you. So please work with me. I want to show you a couple of videos that, that kind of show, I think, where we are. This year will define a legacy. A global coalition has an action plan to put the UK at the forefront of climate leadership. What happens at COP26 will determine the fate of our planet. Around the world, momentum is building for a response within 90 days to the Climate Action Plan. Time is running out. New fossil fuel financing needs to end before 2022. And that was setting the baseline, the launch with my teammates and I of the COP26 Climate Action Plan two years ago, uh, just before Glasgow. The beauty of that plan, you can't see it or feel it here, so I have to describe it to you, is that we were mid-lockdown 
the voice about three quarters of the way through was my 83-year-old mum. Glyn, who sits in the front, brought in his son and daughter, and my son was there as well. And two families got together, and we decided that despite the doom and the gloom and the, the tragic possibility of so much death around us, we needed to speak up. Uh, we had no idea what was going to happen. We didn't know if it was going to be positive or negative. We had no idea what the outcome was going to be, but we had to speak up, and we did. Because this was the problem. If we burrow it down to scientific fact, this is the problem. A group of scientists got together and in 2017 released a book called The Drawdown Project Book, and they showed in quantitative terms that we create 59% more anthropogenic gases than is absorbed by the natural world every year. But there are solutions on the way, real solutions, solutions that might actually happen in time. It's true, the COP26 uh, 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 result, the Glasgow Climate Pact, focused on Article 6. There were no uh, agreements about, about fossil fuels. It's also true that the COP27 at Sharm el-Sheikh had a wrangle about losses and damages and didn't come to a conclusion about even winding down coal. But we had the COP15 launch um, with a framework for global biodiversity, 30 by 30, which made a gigantic positive step. In terms of policy, the US Inflation Reduction Act, a $390 billion monster that's supposed to change the entire US economy, allowing for more manufacturing of renewables. And then there's this minor thing, ceteris paribus, which you're always told, because the reason why we make all these assumptions about things going bad is that we assume everything will stay the same. And that assumption is not valid anymore. Things are changing. And last but not least, we're talking, my team and I, about setting out during London Climate Week, in about a week or two's time, the COP28 Climate Action Plan. It's going to be a plan asking for regrowth asking for positive goals, asking for this infusion of capital and these uh, important policy decisions to be brought to bear in a way that makes the world a better place. And so once again, about that baseline, you will have friends who are denial. Let's not, let's not deny the fact that there is denial out there still. There are very few of them, but they do exist. There are many people who are angry and frustrated. I have to admit that I was certainly one of them a few years ago. And there are some who've been bargaining and I've definitely done that. And there's depression. A lot of us are really just very unworried and very sad about um, what's going to happen. But when we reach the stage of acceptance in this particular model, we can focus on two facts, please. One, the fact that we have a global budget, Rogergi's model is the central model that most climate uh, scientists use, of 420 gigatons before we hit crucial tipping points. That's the amount that we can put out into the atmosphere before we think that it becomes irreversible. And we're moving approximately at 42 gigatons a year. So certainly as at 2019, we have 10 more years to go. Because of that, the UN Compact suggested that we cut emissions at 7.6% per annum in order to remain Paris compliant. And this is the often talked about graph the fact that should we follow that linear pathway in the lower blue line, cutting emissions by 7 or 8% per annum, we will stay within uh, uh, tipping points and within constraints of nature that allow us to keep a livable planet. If we don't, we go to other places. 
Some people believe that with business as usual as it is now, without further uh, uh, change, we might end up in the red zone, uh, a zone of continued growth, where we emit far more uh, greenhouse gases on a per annum basis, and we end up with runaway climate change. But the UN uh, wrote uh, a report setting out what capital flows need to be like, places they need to go, things they need to fund in order to make a really big difference. And they did that in the context of this amazing framework that some of you will be aware of by Kate Rayworth, setting out the fact that there are constraints that we have to look at, but these core constraints are variable and they include climate action, but they also include important social and biophysical thresholds. Now, the, the key takeaway from that, and the thing I think all of us would benefit so much from, from moving away with, is that every country is different. Every place is different. The things we do and the ways that we solve our problems have to be customized to that place. And so I wanted to talk about the context that we're in, the history that we've been through, and how we've arrived at this place. As you can see from this particularly important graph, the use of more and more natural land space uh, uh, for agriculture specifically, but for human use in general, is a core driver of climate change. This particular graph, showing what the Inflation Reduction Act has done, shows a massive change that's being made. As you can see from the graph on the right, the Inflation Reduction Act alone will allow the US to add to it the cut in its carbon budget so that by the year 2050, forgive me, no, 2030, luckily, according to that, we will be at almost half of where we were in, 20, sorry, in 2005. And this is a particularly important graph for emphasis. If we are able to change agriculture and protect our ecosystems, these two improvements alone would double the size of humanity's carbon budget. These two improvements alone would take us an extra 10 years away from tipping points. Those two improvements alone double the chances that we do well in future and we do not hit tipping points. So if you imagine going to all of these countries and looking at all of these constraints and saying to absolutely everyone on the globe, if you manage agriculture better and you manage your ecosystems better, you can shift the entire planet to a safer place by the order of 10 <coughs> years if you focus on those two sectors. Now there's more, but I want to stop here because I want to make sure that we have enough time for questions. I promised Martin that I would. And if we need to go into more detail, we will. Thank you very much. Thanks, Judy. Let's just start a little, a little vox pop. I mean, Judy um, set out the sort of um, the voice of doom to start with, and for good reason, because it was good to start with a little bit of a reality check before we get um, too high on the Kool-Aid of possibility. Um, how many people, if you just put your hands up, how many people think basically we can crack climate change and by cracking climate change, I mean, say, stay within the 1.5 target set at Paris and every COP since um, and have reasonable prospects for a livable planet. How many people think we can actually do that? <laughs> can, can. Well, it's interesting, and a lot of, a lot of people will um, 
we'll say can't. How many people think that we can't? We can't do that. We actually can't do it. So, a relatively few. And I'm going to pick you up, sir, on your suggestion. Um, how many people think we will do it? We will crack, we'll, we'll hold it to 1.5, not next week maybe, but you know, we'll get it there for children, grandchildren, whatever. Okay, so that's quite interesting. So, Chidi, we've, we've, we've got, basically, we have reasonable optimism in terms of human capability, a degree of pessimism in terms of human will. Is that how you see it? And how, how if you do see it like that, which I imagine you do, what might change that? It's a great question, and thank you very much for all of the comments that came out of the audience. Um, the capability and the will are, are two separate things. Um, and what I wanted to outline was that we definitely have the capability. Mm. But it's really important, I think, to acknowledge people's fear, people's worries, and use that as a building block on which to move forward to, to a slightly more um, optimistic future. Now, the, one of the last few slides I put up was about agroforestry and ecosystems. And just to be really clear about this, we have three big uh, uh, biodiversity centers right now that exist on the planet. One is in the Congo Basin, the other is Amazonia, and the third is the South Pacific around Indonesia. And all three of these places, in my opinion, need to be pr protected and grown for us to remain um, uh, as close to 1.5 as possible. And I, I actually think that that will happen. I think it'll happen for about three reasons, none of which are in the mainstream news, for reasons that perhaps don't surprise me. Um, one is that uh, Lula, who's just taken over as president in Brazil, has teamed up with the Congolese government and the Indonesians, and they're in the middle of forming a new coalition of rainforest nations. And that coalition is going to be bargaining for biodiversity credits to maintain those old growth forests. It's extremely important. I can't even begin to tell you uh, how important it is, because while I showed you uh, a chart showing how much of carbon there was in ecosystem maintenance and agricultural uh, uh, reform, the biodiversity that sits on top of that carbon footprint is even more valuable because organic carbon just makes the world a better place. We've never actually been able to solve pollution problems by taking out the pollutants ourselves. It, it's virtually impossible to put something into the air and then pick the atoms back out you know, as humans. What we do is we create biological systems, ecosystems, and we allow them to solve the problems that we've created. And one of the reasons why I'm really, really confident um, that we will get to where we're going to is that I am confident that between that coalition of three nations and a willingness to develop nature-based um, financial disclosures, nature-based credits, nature-based financial systems, that we can solve the problem. Yeah. Let's uh, take some questions from, from the audience before I pitch in. I'm sure there are some. Thank you very much, Chidi. Excellent presentation. I noted a graph that you flashed up a couple of times, and in it you had um, most of these sub-Saharan African countries in a, I think it was in a bubble, which said rise. Is it rising or rising? What does that mean in practice? That's an exceptionally good question. Thank you for that, Henry. Thank you. So I didn't plant that question. It really is actually a very good question. Um, <laughs> um, so there's a big debate um, that's going on between the growth camp and the degrowth camp. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. And anyone who doesn't take a side in this is somehow a really bad person. I mean, you can't, you can't be a growther or you know, non-growther you know, uh, 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 without sort of dealing with that culture war. And I'm 
not in either camp. And that, that chart is the reason why I'm not in either camp. Humanity is moving from a phase of GDP accumulation to development. We're not about adding extra shillings for any one set of economic activities or not. We're about the full panoply of what constitutes well-being. Now, Kate Raworth's incredibly brilliant uh, 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 framework for understanding the constraints that humanities face um, in different constituent places applies to different places in different ways. Now, I think it might actually make sense for me to put this up so that you can see what I mean. May I have the graph back, please? This is the reason why I've moved here. So the, the donut hypothesis is incredibly important. It shows concentric circles around which, you know, we can overconsume or underperform. And you'll see in red on the outside of, uh, of the donut that climate change, excessive use of carbon in this particular case, is a key policy issue we need to consider in depth. However, different countries have different experiences of those constraints. And that's why this graph is so important. As Henry pointed out, there are many countries here whose citizenry live inside their donut in a suboptimal or optimal way. And for them, there's a really important uh, 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 need to uh, create uh, social infrastructure, environmental infrastructure, and physical infrastructure that allows them to develop, uh, to meet the needs of their people. Uh, you will be unsurprised to know that for many of these countries, the average uh, per capita uh, carbon footprint of the citizenry is below two tons uh, uh, per annum. At the other extreme, uh, the US, for example, um, there are consumption rates, especially for fossil fuels, that are far too high. And so you see the red sign that sits on the outside. And, and that's where the growth and degrowth argument gets uh, uh, dealt with, I think, in a lot more detail. The COP28 Climate Action Plan talks about regrowth. Now, regrowth has to do with dealing with those constraints in a constructive way. If you have ecological constraints, like you don't, you, you don't have enough uh, 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 fertile land, you can invest, you can take out activities that expand those constraints. You can, you can, you can uh, uh, reforest land, you can uh, expand sea meadows, you can uh, reinstate ecosystems that didn't uh, thrive in the past by rewilding them, for example. Regrowth is an extremely important component in dealing with this apparent difference between degrowth and growth. We have to figure out a way of growing the size of the ecological environmental pie, if you want to call it that. So I hope that starts to explain that for you, Henry. But for the um, person in Lagos or in Accra or in Brazzaville who is being told, don't go up to Libya or Tunisia and try and go use the back door to Europe, because look what happened this week. Stay in your country, develop it, use the tools that are available. They don't have the levers that we have here in the highly industrialized world. They want to see industrialization. They get furious when they're told that cops, you can't do it the way we did it. What do you tell those people who want it today? They've got their phones, but you won't get liberation through phones alone. <laughs> Great question. So. Um, Competing development paradigms and or development pathways? It's a great question. The pathway that Europe and the US 
use to get to the point that they are in their consumptive patterns is not a viable sustainable pathway for the planet. Mm -hmm. We know this. Um, but the responsibility for changing that cannot lie uh, on the shoulders or heads of people who didn't contribute to that process at all. That's settled. That's not, that's not uh, an issue for, for argument. The argument now is, how do we make that transition happen quickly while making that transition happen equally quickly? And to answer that question, I can answer it directly. If you're a citizen of Texas, for example, you have a carbon footprint of approximately 25 or 30 tons uh, per annum, which is huge by global standards. Ours is about five in the UK. Um, and the reason why that happens is that if you're in that part of the world, you have coal-fired power stations, you have uh, oil-fired power stations, and you have a state legislature that virtually legislated against um, onshore wind um, and solar panels being added to the grid. We'll come to that later on. You can change that pattern by changing that system. So the, the issue of transition is important there. In that place, for those people, with those systems. What is happening over here is development. And development is very different from general consumption and growth, as it were. So when we talk about regrowth uh, for the COP28 letter, we're saying that if you focus on uh, a whole element of the SDGs that sit outside of climate, such as access to clean water, uh, uh, access to education, uh, uh, et cetera, if you focus on those things and grow those, you can, you can see that happen. If you focus on SDG 13 and climate, you see that happen. So I, we're separating the two. It, not all growth is the same, yeah. in summary. Okay. Let's take a question from here. Thank you, and thank you, Henry. Oh, come on, my word. We gave a very strong <laughs> Wow. Um, Do you all know each other? Or is it just... <laughs> 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 question. So political stalemate has varied quite a lot, actually. And I, I, if I, I don't mind if you can do this. If, hang on. I want to go back a little bit because, and Hello. this is the reason why, I'm so sorry, this is the reason why I wanted to play the videos at the start, because COP has been a disappointment. I mean, I, the, the cops in Glasgow and uh, Sharm el-Sheikh were set out to really achieve <laughs> one thing. They had one job, and that was to try and constrain global use of fossil fuels. And that didn't happen because competing interests wanted to be compensated for their current losses and the future expense associated with this new development pathway. However, COP15, the Cumin Montreal um, biodiversity framework was an amazing, amazing win. 
massively understated and mm. a source of great hope. The 30 by 30 target, it has four goals and 23 uh, uh, targets, but the 30 by, by, by 30 target is an incredible ability to make a gigantic amount of difference. So if you wanted me to answer your question very directly, which I'm trying to do right now, if the group of African heads of states who, who, who gather to discuss climate can lock in an agreement to protect biodiversity across the Congo Basin and above and below, the achievement of carbon sequestering targets is easily possible. And that's one of the reasons why I showed you the chart about just how much carbon is sequestered in these systems and how, how much you can grow the budget very rapidly if you maintain those systems. Now, your question about how do we make international decision making far more effective is a particularly powerful and prescient one. <laughs> and Tony Guattari has been asking that question for a very long time. The summit that's planned by, by UNGA, by the UN General Assembly in September is supposed to answer that question. And as always, it's about incentives um, and costs. And the truth of the matter is that um, at The Hague um, in May of 2021, there was an amazing ruling in the district court in the Shell versus Milieu Defense, which put responsibility on large corporates to be constrained by SDG 13. Now forgive me, I don't know how technical this crowd is, but it's about to get bumpy. <laughs> so if you, need, if you need to ask questions, please stop me and ask lots of questions. The, Tell people what SDG 13 is first. Okay, so SDG, the strategic development goals were set out by um, UNCTAD, the United Nations um, Conference on uh, Development. Uh, SDG 13 is the, is the strategic development goal that says that climate change has to be uh, managed downwards, if possible. It only really has one core KPI that everybody agrees on, and that is how much carbon there is in, in the air. Um, so people refer to the Keeling curve constantly. Um, there are other smaller ones, but generally in policy circles, everyone talks about the fact that the Keeling curve is now currently at 422. Uh, we want to get it down to 350, which is safe zone. We want to get it down to 280 if, if, um, if we want to be in a, a comfortable uh, uh, That's parts uh, per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Correct, yep. correct, correct. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question directly, actualizing COP15, the 30 by 2030, you know, keeping 30% of the Earth's surface preserved for biodiversity and carbon accumulation, um, is, is, in my opinion, by a very long way, the single most important thing humanity can do to stay within the constraints of what we have right now. How, optimi how optimistic are you? Because it's a, I think a lot of people are very impressed by that target, but slightly sceptical that we would be able to reach it. I mean, how optimistic are you that we can actually do that? Well, it's a great question. And again, there the, are these constraints. So it's a top-down constraint, right? It's an international conference. Hmm. We all got together. They decided this thing very far away. How do you actualize it on the ground was the question everybody else asked. And then what followed months later was, as I repeat earlier on, this amazing stroke of luck. Mm. Lula becomes president again in Brazil. Mm. He reaches out to the Congolese. They reach out to the Indonesians. And the three of them agree to conserve these, the lungs of the world. Mm. Now, the challenge um, uh, with many of these conventions is the power dynamic is so difficult to get right. But finally, I think, we're seeing groups of countries and less developed countries um, who have these natural assets gathering together to fight for the value of those national, natural assets. And if, if that process has started, then you know that the incentive structure for maintaining those natural assets is being built. Um, and now this is, this is uh, slightly um, 
secret, <laughs> non-public information. About two weeks ago, one of the first big biodiversity credits was signed by the Swedish government. Um, I think the price indication, I can't mention too much now, I've only told you the government name, um, the, the price indication was something of the order of $1,000 a hectare. So if that's the case, uh, the biodiversity credits will allow guardians of that biodiversity to receive $1,000 a hectare. Hundreds of billions of dollars will go to the protection of these forests and the living systems that they house and the Earth's lungs. And if that can, be, if that can happen, if that can be actualized um, in, in, a, in an ironic sort of twist on what happened with OPEC in the 1970s, rather than having an explosion in you know, the use and the production of oil, we'll have an explosion in the use and the production of living ecosystems. Um, it could be a real game changer. Questions? Yes, we got a lady up there. Okay, hi, um, Joy. Um, so I work for a very large company. I'm not gonna say who, but brands you'll all know. And I've just been appointed about two weeks ago to a new sustainability steer co. Um, so we wanted to do the right things. The CEO of the entire organization is absolutely behind it. He's running this Jericho, but we're kind of lost as to what to do. And we've got kind of a roadmap. Um, I've only studied sustainability at Cambridge like last year. It was eight weeks. Learned a lot, but not enough, I think. So what advice would you give to large corporates, large organizations that want to make an impact, but we just don't know what to do? If I'm honest, we just, does that make any sense? It makes yeah. sense. Okay. <laughs> Tell them what to do, should he? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the Cambridge Institute of, of Sustainable Leadership is, is a great school. Mm. So you've done, you've, done, you've done the first and most important thing. A piece was written in the Financial Times about five years ago. I'm hoping things have changed a lot since then, saying that one of the core reasons why targets weren't being set by um, companies, even in the FTSE 100, is that only 2% of boards had people on them that knew anything about the environment or the impact of the environment on their business. But this is, this is years ago. We're making that change. So as I say again, the fact that you went to the Cambridge Institute of Stable Leadership is a great beginning. Take your CEO with you next time is the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is that we're, we're trying to encourage large corporates to have their CSOs on boards hmm. and at C-suite meetings. Your chief sustainability officer is not someone who writes your advertising blurb about what your ambitions are. We don't have one. You don't, you don't have a CSO? Okay, okay. Well, my first recommendation <laughs> is <laughs> find someone inside the organization who's willing to take responsibility of product, li product life cycles and usage across the organization because chief sustainability officers do some of the most amorphous jobs in industry right now. Um, and that's because every job is a climate job. I mean, almost anything you do with an organization can be impacted by the way it interacts with its environment, for a very obvious reason. That's, that's my first recommendation. My second recommendation for a company that wishes to um, explore being more environmentally responsible is look to the TCFD, the Task Force for uh, Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, uh, and try and get governance, risk, strategy, uh, and management uh, processes that align with the impact you want to make. Um, I think if you do those two things, if you educate yourself, if you uh, create and implement a role for a CSO, and you start down the journey of financial disclosure, I, I think that's an excellent place to start. 
One thing I would, I would say, I've worked with a number of corporates on sustainability just from the outside, um, is it's interesting how one of the key drivers is staff themselves. Um, and particularly, it, for those, uh, particularly graduates, young people working in corporates, who are bright enough to have the choice of who they work for, it is much easier for a, a company to recruit and retain them if they seem to be doing the right thing from a sustainability point of view. And I was talking to somebody some years ago from a, a big oil company who said it was going to becoming increasingly hard to recruit the sort of people who they really wanted to recruit, the brightest and the best who they wanted to recruit, because they had a choice of going and working elsewhere, of not working in that industry. And that, he said, was one of the things that made the board sit up and take notice. Um, I mean, I read some research a couple of weeks ago that 78% or 76% of millennials will only work for a company that is sustainable, yeah. which is amazing compared to my generation. Yeah. So that's, a, a, that's a, a benefit if we go sustainable, but it really is. It's, it's, and we don't have to disclose our financials to a certain amount because we're a private company, but it's, it's more the CEO wants to do the right thing. Mm. But again, it's the kind of the guidance that we need to kind of get there. And we have a lot of scope three we need to look at. Definitely a huge amount of scope three because we have so many vendors and manufacturers and all of that. So again, it's, it's kind of what guidance is out there. Um, and there's, of course, no budget set aside for this, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> so we want to do everything, but we have no budget to do it. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how yeah. can I help kind of like, you know, guide the Steerco um, and what guidance is out there kind of for free that we can get? And is there any? Great question. Um, th there are lots of resources um, that are available, but I, I think I want to weave together things that I've heard from both of you already and amplify them. So access to employees is harder if you're not a sustainable company. Soon, access to investors is going to be harder if you're a successful, su yeah. sustainable company. Um, and of course, access to markets, customers. People won't buy from you, you're the least sustainable option. And what, what CSOs are now able to do is, it isn't uh, 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 new anymore in, in, in many companies, in many sectors, to have CSOs who are actually creating profit centers. And the ways in which they can do it are things that in the past companies have simply thrown away can be sold on and enter into a circular economy. Um, utility providers who are greener are often cheaper. And practices that involve installing solar panels, for example, on you know, high energy intensive uh, uh, branches or sectors of the company cut costs. So th the idea of having a C-suite CSO or of implementing transition plans in a coordinated way isn't a cost center anymore, it's a profit center. I think we've hit that tipping point. That's another one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. I think that people are beginning to understand that you know, it's about making the world a better place and making your business a better business at the same time. Very good. Any other questions? Oh, we've got two. Let's start with the chap at the back and then the lady here. Thank you very much for... Uh your presentations and for all the questions so far, I think is extremely insightful. So I am an urban planner, but also a technologist. And the reason I became a technologist and a CDO was I found out that just with plans and policies, you cannot do much, especially if there is, as mentioned earlier, no political will or things can take a long time. 
and people uh, might get frustrated because they don't see the effects immediately. So I know that there are there many interesting projects and technologies that are actually making an impact beyond the report or beyond the target or, or a proposal. So can you provide some examples of technologies or projects that can encourage people to get more involved, uh, the kind of technologies that showed immediate or effects in short term and people can adopt on a wider scale? Thank you. Great question. Great question. Thanks very much. So um, I already hinted at it um, just now. Um, and it's a little bit cliched, but it's actually very, very important. Solar panels, you now semi-ubiquitous solar panels. In the 1950s or so, I think when the technology came up, um, they were really expensive to put together. The alloys were difficult to manufacture. I think the estimates that I read were that it costs about um, $1,900 per watt yeah. of electricity. Yeah. It was so expensive at the time that they were only fitted on, I think, um, Apollo, the mission to the moon. I mean, nobody else could afford to use them whilst you need to. Um, the levelized cost of electricity now, according to Lazard's, a very respected uh, consultancy, um, with uh, utility-scale solar, is I think 9.3 pence per watt. Um, it's the cheapest electricity ever generated uh, that we've ever heard of, ever. Um, which is the reason why I said just now as I spoke, as a company that's interested in transition, it makes economic sense to make that transition even on your scope one, even on the stuff that you use yourself. I'm gonna take that example and stretch it even further to, to show where we are in a way I think that people aren't very clear about. Everyone, including myself, was very frustrated when we found out that um, uh, Jabril El Sharma, I think is his name, he's the CEO of the uh, Abu Dhabi Petroleum Company. He's the current president of COP28. When we found out that they had made <laughs> the CEO of their national oil company the president of the COP process, I don't know about you, but I was slightly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I thought we were trying to ask him to stop. You've just given him the steering wheel, the gearbox, <laughs> the car, and you've filled up the tank, and you've, it doesn't make any sense. And so I started digging, because it was really important to me to try and get to the bottom of this. I called up friends who were in Dubai. I was like, this is insane. What are you people doing? Are you unhinged? And they said, well, you have to sort of go back and see what that company is doing. Now, the UAE uh, National Petroleum Company has built the biggest solar array in the world. And they've just breached the 9.3 cent um, per, per, per watt uh, 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 price tag. I don't know what it is that they're claiming it's like eight or something. But something really striking has happened there in that a man who's actually doing transition has been called in to manage a transition for him. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a huge fan of everything he does, and there are really big problems with what's going on. But I think we're starting to see this, I think, a social tipping point, where the arguments for and against are coming together, and the arguments for renewables are winning on costs everywhere, all the time. And, and we need to say that out loud. Uh, clearly so everybody can hear, 
Because otherwise, you get told that you're a, a hippie and a tree hugger. I love trees. I'm nothing wrong with hippies. <laughs> but, but, <Yeah. laughs> but, but the economics actually works, like really works. Got time for one more question. I think you had your hand up. If you would just wait for the mic for a second. Thank you. Thanks, Judy, for, for sharing your optimism with all of us. Um, this sort of tags on to that previous question. In the spirit of positive news, um, are there any positive examples, be those countries, be those companies, be those regional legislators that you can point to anywhere in the world that you can point to and say, actually, they've got this right, and this is a model we might be able to follow, just as a way to prove that there is possibility? I've got one, but Judy, you can start. Thank you for that. So in August of, of 2022, that's a hint that some of you will automatically know what I'm about to say. Um, uh, this act came through called the IRA. So it wasn't a hit in Britain. <laughs> um, but the Inflation Reduction Act is radical beyond anything we'd imagined possible beforehand. You have, to, you have to kind of see where we were. We were dealing with Trump. We had to, we had to bite our tongues and, um, and, and try to be constructive about what was a very destructive process um, where environmental policy was concerned. The EPA had had its mandate junked. A lot of bad things were happening. But the Inflation Reduction Act is an incredible piece of legislation. It isn't perfect. It allows for new fossil fuel projects, which, which we're not happy about. But on the other side of the balance sheet, it has unlimited tax credits available for companies who are in transition. Unlimited. The estimates that have come out from Rodium that it's going to deliver um, 389 billion, about 30 billion a year, in renewable infrastructure growth over the next 10 years are, in my opinion, a massive understatement. It's uncapped. And what it's done, and the reason why it's a great tipping point, is that it's evangelizing companies because they're now seeing the balance sheet benefits of transition. They're seeing that when you go from you know, using the dirty coal or gas-fired utility provider that you used to use and you become a part owner of a solar array and your electricity bills falls by 90%, and these numbers do happen in places like Texas, uh, and every time there's a massive global shock and oil prices spike, you're unimpacted. It evangelizes people in a really moving and important way because they then realize that this is actually just the right thing to do. So, you know, granted, it could be better and we could hope for more from lots of other governments, but if I had to choose one, I'd choose the IRA. That, I'm afraid we're sort of going to wrap up. You've just got time for a very quick question. We're keeping you from lunch otherwise. Very good question, yes, please. We'll just wait for the mic, if we can pass the mic. My name is Olga, and I work in the um, development financial institution, and I want to ask you about money. Uh, not in America or developed Europe, but the countries that were in, the, in this zone, and the countries that largely have no capital markets, they do not have access to green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds, etc. So, And there are a number of organizations, like World Bank with a new leader, my bank, other banks, that were tasked with uh, converting billions to trillions. And you've, you've been hearing stories about private sector, but it seems to me most of them are doing it solo. So as a former financier, what's your hope and whether we can and will do money mobilization for those who cannot pay and who just rely on con concessional finance? Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that. So, Again, briefly, Chidi, if you are. 
an exceptionally good question, but I have to be brief on. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, the FDI flows um, are very challenging. I mean, I, I, there's a graph that I brought up, and we can discuss this afterwards. Not only that, the ambitions are shockingly poor. So um, as you said, we need to transfer from millions to, to billions. Um, I think if you look into a broader panoply of funding that involves both nature restoration and infrastructure accumulation for low carbon pathways, if you do that, I think you're in trillions. I don't think you're in billions. I think you need even more than that. There are defined risks that, um, perceived and real, that um, private sector uh, uh, entities say that they face in investing in certain sectors and countries and geographies. Those risks can be priced and those risks can be paid for. The question is who pays for those risks? Um, and there are philanthropic entities who are lining up to do so. What we really need is a concerted and clear effort to shepherd and coordinate those people. So, and this for me is a great place to end, so thank you for asking this question. When you connect people, you create power. And that's how you solve the problem. Excellent. Chidi, thank you so much. That was a great presentation and some very erudite answers to erudite questions. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.